the word of God is really one story. It is one narrative that begins with creation and goes all the way through until the new creation. It's a story of God who bursts onto the scene, creating everything that is created and violating his own right to privacy by allowing his creation to know him, condescending to be made known. And not only to be made known, but to be made much of in this creation such that everything you see in the ordered universe testifies to the fact that it was created by a sovereign and all-wise God. And therefore, he looks upon it and he says that it is good. But it wasn't very long before the very two people that he had created first turned what was very good into something that was worthy only of his curse because they rebelled against him in the same way that the angels and Satan himself had rebelled against God. And so you move into a section of the whole story of redemptive history where the fall comes into view, the fall of man and woman. And then from there, the rest of the story unfolds as this ongoing act of beautiful redemption where God does the seeking, God does the initiating, God moves forward into the very perilous reality of this rebellious group of people who have turned against him and his law, and he creates a method, a way by which, if they will repent and turn of their sins, they can be reconciled to him. And then it ends with the glorious restoration of all things made new. And all of those who were chosen of him before the foundation of the world to enjoy that creation with him in glory and joy. You see, the ultimate story of the Bible is a love story. It's a love story of God pursuing those who have rebelled against him. It's a love story of God creating a way by which his only son would be given a bride, eventually made pure and righteous, and to enjoy that relationship forever. It is a story where God's love and mercy and grace ultimately triumph over the sin and the rebellion and the hatred of all of lost humanity. That's why Paul is brokenhearted when he writes Romans 9. Because if there was ever a nation that was put onto the stage of redemptive history and prominently displayed and allowed to occupy the spotlight, it was the nation Israel. He said that it was through Israel, through the patriarchs and through the prophets that God revealed this amazing plan to them. And yet, when they had that opportunity face-to-face with the incarnate Messiah, it was the Jewish leaders. It were the ones who should have known. They were the experts in the Old Testament. They were the experts in the prophecies who turned against him and in collaboration with the Roman authorities had him put to death. So when Paul pens the content of Romans 9, he he does so from the vantage point of a broken-hearted evangelist who really wants more than anything to help the Jews understand that they were the ones to whom were given the Messiah. But he goes a step further to say, remember, I am also the apostle to the Gentiles. And so as much as his heart breaks for the fact that his own people have rejected the Messiah... He says that it was through their rejection that God planned a way for even Gentiles to be welcomed into the family of God and to become children of the promise. 
that's the title and the theme of all of Romans 9, 14 through 29. And we have been moving through that systematically over the last several weeks. Essentially, what we have is Paul standing up in the court of human opinion and giving his defense of the justice of God. It's as if you were in a courtroom and Paul stands there as the lead defense attorney and he is defending the very honor of God against the accusations that he has done something unjust or unfair. Or that somehow those who are part of God's plan have a right to speak back to him and to challenge him for the decisions that he makes as the sovereign God of the universe. And what we saw is that Paul has four lines of argumentation here. Mercy, providence, patience, and then the fourth one we'll cover today, which is love. How did Paul's argument unfold? He says you have to understand that God is at work through his mercy, through his providence, through his patience, and through his love. Now, just by way of review, I want to make sure we understand what those mean. You know, God is a God who does not need to be defended. God is a God who does not need human beings to come to his aid. God doesn't need the finite human mind to reason and rationalize all of the motivation for the decisions that he makes and then craft an argument for fellow human beings to embrace as a way of somehow compensating for the majesty of God's wisdom. It doesn't need man's help. However, he allows the Apostle Paul. He allows him to craft an argument for the purpose, not really of defending God alone, but more or less to point to God's majesty and his glory this is a defense, but it's also a doxology. It's a defense, but it's also a way to praise God. It's a defense, but it's also a way to take somebody's wandering eyes and to turn the back towards the glory of the gospel at work in the lives of all people and call all of them to a renewed or to a first-time relationship with a loving Savior. He begins by looking at mercy, and that's in verses 14 through 18. We saw when we studied that section that man is born spiritually dead. Uh, man is born by nature and by choice in a position of open hostility toward God, and any kind of reconciliation would require God to make the first move. Have you ever experienced a breach in a relationship? You ever had one of those... Um, Arguments with somebody who's really close to you? Maybe a spouse, child, really close friend. And there's a certain distance that begins to grow between you. And there's a little bit of a standoff that starts to take place. You both know the re relationship has to get reconciled. You both know you eventually have to talk. You both know you eventually have to sort this out. And you're prepared to as soon as they are willing to admit they were wrong. You're ready. You are in an open posture of receptivity. You are a very fountain of forgiveness. You are benevolence personified if only 
they would admit they were wrong. If only God would humble them because that's what they need. And so you sit there patiently waiting for them to acknowledge their error, to come crawling back, perhaps not even crawling. You'd accept them if they were walking. But as soon as they do, everything will be fine. Have you ever had a relationship like that, an experience like that? Are you having that right now? Don't nod. We'll have our elders available for counseling right after the service. Listen, that relationship is not dissimilar to what it is between God and all of lost humanity. The difference is, not only is there a silence that has filled that gap, not only is there a sense of waiting for one person to come and ask forgiveness, there is in fact on the part of mankind an open hatred and hostility towards God and absolutely no desire whatsoever to reconcile. The heart of man is set against God, hates God, wars against God. And so God, when he reconciles himself to man, when he, through Christ, provides the means by which reconciliation and forgiveness and atonement can be made, it is unilateral. It's a one-way street. It's him leaning into the hostility of man. It is him grabbing hold of the fists of man as they are thrown at him and wrestling him into submission to God's own will to forgive him. When Christ is offered, it is not a synergistic relationship where man comes halfway and God meets him the rest. No, it's monogistic. It is a one-way street. And it is called mercy. And it's a mercy that God extends because in the midst of our raging against him, he breaks us of our own enslaved will that is enslaved to sin. And like he did with Saul who became Paul, he turns that heart that is actively and aggressively against him and causes that heart to love him instead. That's what mercy looks like. And that's the first argument that Paul makes. He answers back to those who are questioning God and his justice by saying that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion because he is the one who does all the work. Now, it's not just mercy, it's also providence. Last week we spoke at length about this, so if you are reading over these verses later and you think this is very complicated, I would invite you maybe to listen to the message that I gave last week where I endeavored to unpack this to the best of my ability. I was reminded on more than one occasion this week that I went a lot longer than I was supposed to last week. I won't mention who reminded me of that, but I was reminded of that more than once. And so, as a way to bear fruit of repentance, I'm going to end early today. We have some other things we need to do at the end of the service, so you're still going to get out at the same time, but the sermon will be a little shorter. But since we're still reviewing, I can't say that with absolute certainty. We went back to this, Providence. Covered that in verses 19 through 21 last week, and the question here in verses 19 through 21 was, again, a very challenge to the justice of God questioned whether or not he was fair. So the first argument that Paul makes in defense of God's justice was his willingness to show mercy. The second defense Paul makes in defense of God's justice is his divine providence. 
Much can be said about this, but what I wanted to leave you with last week is an understanding that under no circumstances does God harden soft hearts. God does not take people who are soft-hearted towards him and towards the gospel and harden them in rebellion. As a matter of fact, the only hearts that are hardened are hearts like Pharaoh, which were already hardened toward God. You see, since the fall, every human being was born with a sin nature. They were born with a hard heart. Jeremiah calls it literally a heart of stone. One of the other prophets calls it a heart that was diamond hard. What's the hardest stone in the world? The diamond. He calls them diamond hard hearts. Imagine the vivid imagery of that. That's what the human heart is like. God doesn't need to harden the heart. The heart is already hardened, already destined in its rebellion, already headed to eternal judgment. And so the questioning of God here to say, who is he to harden hearts? The reality is he never hardens a heart that's not already hard. He never hardens a heart that is soft towards him. And the only heart that is soft towards him is a heart that he softens. You see, every aspect of his providence brings those whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world into relationship with him and those who are passed over into their rightful judgment. So that's his mercy and his providence. The the third we saw was his patience, and that's where we pick up the story of those whose hearts are hard. In fact, he continues to shower his common grace even among those who remain in their rebellion. The way he describes that in the Old Testament and the New is that he allows the rain and the sunshine to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He has common grace. Imagine if only Christians were the ones who received common grace. So you are the only Christian on your street. And therefore, you are the only home in the neighborhood who does not have a massive infestation of termites, who does not have a brown lawn completely scorched no matter how often you water it, You're the only home in the neighborhood where nothing ever goes wrong. You're the only family with children. You are the the only ones who experience any kind of happiness. Uh, You're the only ones who experience the sunshine. Everywhere else on the street, for some reason, there's a cloud right there, and they're completely shrouded in darkness. Uh, You're the only one that gets any of the good things that are in this world still, despite the fall. That's not what you experience, is it? I mean, you look around, and there are people around you who are in absolute rebellion against God, and yet every single day of their life, they are showered with the common graces of rain and sunshine. Now, we know a lot about sunshine, not a lot about rain, but fortunately, God gave it today because he knew I was going to be mentioning that. And the rare times we get the rain, we should be thankful instead of grumbling that it makes our cars so dirty. The common grace of God, marriage, family, sun, rain, green grass, fruit, things that work. He says, I pour it out all the time, even upon these vessels of wrath. And so he turns to his accusers there, and he acknowledges his patience. He says, God is patient with them. 
But he says, what if God was willing to do something that we can't understand? And then he elaborates. He says that God shows common grace even to the vessels of wrath who will be left in their state of rebellion until he is glorified by their judgment. Until he is glorified by their judgment. He says, don't ask why God chooses to save some and not others. That's a question that actually puts God on the stand and makes him answer for himself. Questions his justice, questions his honor, questions his kindness, questions his character. But instead, ask yourself why he would in his mercy see fit to choose any by divine providence and be patient with the rest. One of the reasons that Paul is going to give is that he is patient even with those who are objects of wrath or who are vessels of destruction because it was an opportunity for others to be grafted in. The story of the nation of Israel is a story of cycles of rebellion and judgment and repentance and restoration and rebellion and judgment and restoration. It's over and over again throughout the whole story of their existence. And Paul says that in their present state of rebellion and rejection, it is not that God has forgotten them forever, but because he has given now an opportunity for Gentiles who were not part of that original covenant to be grafted in and to get all of the same promises that were dedicated to the offspring of Abraham. He says, you want to know why God is patient with those who are even vessels of wrath? It's because it gives others an opportunity to become sons of the promise. Now, all of this leads us to the fourth argument. And so Paul, once again, stands up in this courtroom of human opinion, and he gives his final line of reasoning. He's covered God's mercy, he's covered God's providence, he's covered God's patience. But now we're going to pick up on the fourth, and that is God's love. God's love. And Paul looks over at the desk from which he just got up, and there are two of his star witnesses. And he's going to call each of them to the stand to testify to God's love. The first one is Hosea. And the second one is Isaiah. And he is going to call these prophets, these star witnesses, to the stand to give a defense for the love of God in the whole scope of redemptive history. And this morning we're only going to look at one. And that is the story of Hosea. And the reason why we're only going to look at one is because I'd like to do a little bit of work in this often neglected prophecy. So take your Bibles and turn to the left, to the first of the minor prophets. The first of the minor prophets, Hosea. The prophets are comprised of two collections of letters. We call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. And that doesn't mean varsity and junior varsity. That means that the major prophets were the ones who had long books and the minor prophets were the ones who had short books. That's all it takes to be in the minors, is that you have to be brief and concise. That's why I like the minor prophets, because I can sit down for my daily devotions and read a whole book of the Bible. I feel like I've really accomplished something. Hosea is an amazing story on so many levels. It's the story of a prophet. It's the story of a prostitute. 
And it's a story of the promise of God to restore lost people to himself. It's the story of a prophet, of a prostitute, a promise. Now I'm going to begin by actually looking at Hosea chapter 4, because that's really where the big prophecy begins. So we're going to tell the love story in a moment, but I want to give you the backstory first. When, when, Isaiah, or when Hosea gives his prophecy, and it's going to be quoted here in a moment uh, in the book of Romans, we need to understand everything that Hosea said, or else we're not going to understand the quote. We're not going to understand why Paul chooses to quote from Hosea 2 and Hosea 1, unless you understand what's going on from Hosea 4 all the way to the end of the book. For him to, to pull out of the Old Testament scriptures this particular story of this particular prophet dealing with this particular wicked wife who was an absolute abomination, showing the degree to which God will go to rescue his people, do we understand all of what he is saying that they have done? We're not going to understand how, how vivid the imagery is for him to use this prophet as an example of God's love for his church. Hosea was writing during the um, high point of Israel's history. In the Old Testament, when we talk about Israel, we're talking about the ten northern tribes. When we talk about Judah, it's the southern tribes. This is after the kingdom had been split, after Solomon's reign. The southern tribes were Judah and Benjamin. The northern tribes were the other ten. And writing at about 722 B.C., they are at the high point of their culture and their economy. And Hosea is sent to tell them that in the midst of it all, they are on the verge of being overtaken by the Assyrians who would bring them into captivity from which they would never return. So just allow your eyes to follow along here in chapter 4 and following. I just want to hit some of the high points this is the prophecy he says against them. Uh, Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. They had turned their mind away from God's truth, from God's law. They didn't know anything. They were ignorant. Verse 12 of chapter 4, my people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles. He's being sarcastic. He's saying you, you've given up God's word and instead you're asking for advice from idols. Chapter 5 and verse 7, it says they have dealt faithlessly with Yahweh for they have borne alien children. Uh, they have begun intermarrying with the pagan nations around them which was outlawed by God. Chapter 6 and verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Oh, they had kept offering sacrifices, but their heart wasn't in it. And God says, I don't really care about a bunch of animals cut up and burned on a fire. What I care about is your heart. I want your heart. I've lost your heart. You're going through the motions. Now, you might be thinking, I'm so glad I don't live in the Old Testament where I would go through the motions. Can you go through the motions? Yeah, you can. Maybe you've been going through the motions. Maybe you are going through the motions. If you are, there's hope. Just hold on till the end. He says over in chapter 8, verse 4, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew them not. With their silver and their gold, they make idols for their own destruction. Oh, they were wealthy. 
Things were going well in Israel. The stock market was at an all-time high. Housing prices, through the roof. Their 401ks were completely recovered from a year and a half ago, and they were doing so well. There was money dropping from heaven. I mean, they were looking around saying, we have never been more prosperous. We have never been more wealthy. We have never been more successful. We have never been more fruitful. Times have never been better. God must be happy with us because, as we all know, when God's happy with us, we're rich. And along comes Hosea saying, in the midst of it all, it'll be a very short time and you will be completely destroyed. They couldn't imagine falling from the high point they had attained. They couldn't imagine ever being in want because they had so much. How could they possibly fail? They were indestructible. They were too big to fail. But Hosea says, you're doomed. Chapter 10, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Hosea is writing to a people who the wealthier they got, the more idolatrous they became. Let me try to interpret that for us. The wealthier they got, the more stuff they bought. The wealthier they got, the more stuff they became focused on. The wealthier they got, the more discontent they were with the stuff they had because there was so much more stuff that they didn't have and they wished they could have. So they worked harder to make more money to buy more stuff so they could have more idols. And not only that, they also, as they succeeded, made their pillars even more improved. Now, I don't mean to be unnecessarily graphic here, but in those days, the, the pillars... The pillars were, were set up as places for idol worship. And those pillars were decorated with all sorts of erotic images. And the pillar was the place where the temple prostitutes would ply their trade and where people would go and worship that way. So you have here a nation that is wealthy, idolatrous, and utterly and completely immoral. Chapter 10, verse 10. When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. So for their iniquity of idolatry and immorality, God says, when I am ready, when I am pleased, I will discipline them, I will punish them, and I will do that by bringing other nations against them. It's an incredible warning. Look over at chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I have called my son. Remember that prophecy fulfilled when Jesus comes back after his parents escaped to Egypt. Here, the original context is God is saying, I loved you, I cared for you, I pulled you out of the 400 years of slavery in Egypt, only to have you now turn against me and run back to the idols and the immorality that the very nation was defined by that I rescued you from. Chapter 13. It has become so bad that you offer human sacrifices and you kiss calves. They would kill people and offer people as sacrifices and they would kiss the golden calf 
images of their idolatry. This is the nation of Israel. This is the nation that had the Old Testament prophets. They had the law of Moses. They were God's chosen ones, and they are sacrificing humans, kissing idols, engaged in immorality, and luxuriant lifestyles based on the prosperity that they thought they were getting because they were God's favored people, and they would never experience anything less. God says in chapter 13, verse 8, here's what to expect. This is vivid. Look at it. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. This is not what they put in the kids' picture books in Sunday school, is it? A bear robbed of her cubs. Let me explain what that means. As you know, I do a lot of camping, um, spend a lot of time in the outback. Um, kind of a, I'm kind of a, a nature man myself. Um, no, it's not true whatsoever. If you're new here, that was a joke. I do not like camping. Three-star hotels occasionally, but apart from that, not going to happen. Why? Because of things like this. Like, this is what I think of. People say, I'm going camping. And I, think, I think, don't get between a bear and her cubs because you're going to get ripped to shreds. That's what happens out there. Think that tent's going to protect you? Wandering around. Oh, look at the cubs. Come take a picture with the cubs. Next thing you know, you're on TV. We believe these are the remains... Pastor Jonathan Rourke, he came out here to prove that camping is as pleasant as people say it is, only to have been apparently eaten and dismembered by a mother bear. But he goes further. Watch National Geographic and the way a lion rips into something. You know how lions hunt? This is interesting. They send out the women. Do you know what? The, 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 the lion with the mane, he, he's never the one running after the gazelle. He's the one waiting under the tree for them to come back. But what do they do? They clamp on to the throat, constrict the airflow, and the animal suffocates, and then they drag it around to where they can get at the soft parts, and they begin ripping it open. And before long, they work their way into that animal, and they consume everything inside of it before working on the outside for the meat. Now, that vivid imagery that's in your mind right now God sees fit, believe it or not, to use that imagery to describe the way that he will come after his own people for their idolatry and immorality. And that's not me trying to bring shock value. That's what it says in the text. This is how he describes it. That's how seriously he takes it. And believe me, there was never a people on the face of the earth that had less fear of that happening to them than Israel. Because Israel at this time had bought into the idea that God was prospering them because they were Israel. Of course, we're Israel. We're God's chosen people. We're going to be rich. We're going to be successful. We're going to be safe. Oh, I know there's some immorality over there. I know there's a bit of idolatry. Yeah, we're a bit materialistic. But you know, God's an understanding God. After all, he's merciful. He says, I'm going to rip you apart. Because what matters most to me is that I have your heart. I don't need your animals. At the very end of Hosea, the prophecy he gives to the people, he ends with a word of hope. 
Verse 9 says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the way of Yahweh are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. How do you differentiate the ones who will repent from the ones who don't? They're the ones who don't stumble over God's law. They don't stumble over God's word. They hear it, and they're broken by it. It is the rock that breaks them, not the rock upon which they are broken. They, they feel their own rebellion, and they acknowledge, yeah, I, I am that way. My heart is far from you. I am materialistic. I am immoral. I, I, I am that one. I, I don't want this. I, I want the relationship restored. Now do whatever it takes. Take away whatever you need to. I want you more than anything else. And so this kind of rebuilding of a relationship is the theme of Hosea. Now let's go back and see the picture. That's the, the prophet. Let's talk about the prostitute in the picture. The story of Hosea is one of the most um, interesting in all of the Bible. Let me just give you a brief overview because of time. Hosea, a prophet of God, is called upon to go and to marry a woman who either was or became a prostitute. Now, this is sort of an interesting instruction from God, isn't it? You wouldn't think that God would call the person who's going to be his mouthpiece to marry somebody so that he would have a really terrible marriage. Now, you think that you know what a terrible marriage looks like. Maybe you know people who are in a terrible marriage. I would wager that you've never experienced a marriage as terrible as this marriage. This was a terrible marriage. Hosea marries Gomer, and not too long after that, Gomer begins sleeping around with other men. And then when they have children, God says, I want you to name them certain names so that you can communicate through your very life what I am going to do in the nation of Israel. And so here he is with this woman who is already known as a prostitute, and they begin to have children. And as they have children, a daughter is born... And this is fascinating. He says this, verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Bibliam. This is in chapter 1, verse 3. And she bears him a son. He has a son, then he has a daughter, and then he has another son. And the first son is to be named Jezreel. You might say, well, that sounds like a nice name. Well, then you see what it means. He says, name him Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Well, then she has another child, there's a daughter, and God says, I want you to name the daughter no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel. And then another son. Call that son's name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. It's bleak. Three children, all with names of how God has rejected his people. And yet at the end of chapter one, we read this. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said of them, you are not my people, 
It shall be said of them, children of the living God. Does that sound familiar? That's the quote from Romans 9. Paul reaches back and he grabs that verse. Now you have to hold that in your mind. We're going to go back to Romans 9 at the end. We're going to see how this ties in. But we can't understand that until we understand this. The context is that he has just told Hosea to name his children names that explain that God is going to reject them and forsake them and divorce them. And yet he says in the midst of all of that, there is hope that it will not be permanent. One day you will be restored to me. Look at chapter 2. Say to your brothers, this is to the children of Israel, his fellow Israelites, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. He says this, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her pouring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Uh, We could go on. Once again, you see the intensity to which God is going to afflict the Israelites for their rejection of him. They are, he says, a whoring, adulterous wife. Why did Hosea have to marry Gomer? Because Hosea had to allow all of the society that he was living in to see that he was the victim of a wife who was a whore and an adulteress. And the reason was that when he prophesied against Israel, he said, you are to God what she is to me. What an incredible burden he bore. You still want to be an Old Testament prophet? He was a living picture of the horrible rejection that God was facing from his own people. But I want you to see how the story ends. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the fulfillment in a personal way of what God promises to the nation. Right before the events of chapter 3 occur, he says this at the end of chapter 2, once again, where Paul will quote in Romans. He says, speaking of his own people, that I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Restored relationship. You see, the first aspect of God's love is a restored relationship. He's going to restore them. There's going to be love again. No mercy will receive mercy. Not my people will be his people. And Hosea is going to live that out in front of us. Chapter 3, verse 1, Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel though they have turned to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Um, By the way, this is not an indictment against raisin cakes. If you like raisin cakes, you have permission to eat as many of them as you want. What this was, was what they would eat when they would engage in their idol worship. So it's a specific kind of raisin cake. That's a problem here. But look what happens in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and six bushels and three bushels of barley. 
What this means is that um, Gomer had reached the lowest point in her life. Gomer had basically been put up for sale. In those days, what you would do is you would bring a person that you owned, a slave, and you would bring them into the public market, and they would be stripped naked, and they would stand before those who were buying slaves that day, and they would be auctioned off. And evidently, Gomer's prostitution and relationships with other men had left her in a position where she was owned by somebody. Maybe had to sell herself into prostitution just to pay her bills. And now she's not really worth anything anymore. Maybe she's no longer able to be engaged in that kind of work. Maybe her owner is just finished with her. She's used up. And so in that absolute condition of shame and dishonor, she is presented before the bidders that day to be sold off. And among the voices in the crowd that are bidding for this slave is a voice she recognizes, and it's, it's that of Hosea. Hosea, the single dad, raising three kids with cursed names, prophesying to Israel at the height of her economic success that the time will come when she is ruined. A man who in an honor-shame culture would have been utterly and completely rejected by the other men in the city because of the behavior of his wife. A man who, if you read the rest of the book, you'll realize he, he was continuing to care for her and provide for her and send gifts to her even in the midst of her rebellion and her idolatry. A man who loved her through all of it. That man bids for her. And that man buys her back. What does he do? Verse 3. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterwards, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. He takes her and he clothes her. He covers her shame. He takes her back to be with him. He says, you're not going to continue on living the way that you were living. There is going to be a period of time where this relationship is restored, where it is rebuilt, but you are going to be my wife and I'm going to be your husband and, and I am going to love you and I am going to forgive you and I am going to overlook the shame that you brought upon me and our family and yourself. And I'm going to restore you after many days. And it's meant to be a picture of what God's going to do with the nation of Israel. You, you're going to be taken away. You're going to be stripped. Uh, you're going to lose everything. You're not going to rule yourself. You're not going to have your own king. You're not going to have your own prophets. You're not going to have your own religious services. But the time will come in the latter days when I restore you. 
Now, to make matters even more interesting, go back to Romans 9. Paul reaches back. He grabs these verses. And he puts Hosea on the stand. He says to this court that is challenging the goodness of God, As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said of them, you are not my people, there they'll be called sons of a living God. He shares this message in the context of hope for Israel, but I want you to notice something which is absolutely astonishing. He also does this in the context of promises that were made to Gentiles. In verse 24, he says, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And then down in verse 30, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith? This is about the Gentiles, not just about the Jews. Paul expands this. He says, not only will God restore the nation of Israel, but it will be the true Israel, the true people of God, made up not only of Jews, but of those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The real fulfillment of Hosea is not just when Israel returns, but when the real Israel is seen comprised of the chosen ones from all the nations. The great hope, the great promise towards the end of Romans 9 here is that God's mercy and providence and patience and his love is showered out not just upon those who he chose from the beginning to be his people, but those whom he chose to be his people from every tribe in the world. As vivid as the story of Hosea and Gomer is, it's even more vivid when you realize that it's ultimately a picture of what Christ has done for the church. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus Christ in his absolute holiness and purity buying back those who had rejected him. Now, Hosea paid a price. He paid in silver. He paid in grain. Jesus Christ paid with himself. He put himself out there. He put himself out as the payment to buy back his bride. You know, it's easy to think about Christ as the shepherd or Christ as the king. But how often do you think about Christ as your husband? How often do you think about Christ as the husband of the bride who is the church? How often do you associate yourself with Gomer, with shame and rejection and adultery and chasing after idols and chasing after material things and chasing after immorality, finding yourself in a place where you're absolutely destitute, naked, shamed, and hearing out in the crowd the one calling for your redemption and it being Christ himself. Far be it from us to not give him the due honor that comes from seeing 
a husband willing to lay down his life for his bride the way Christ laid down his life for the church. He paid in something far more valuable than money. He paid in his blood. He didn't just buy you back. He died for you. He died for you so that you wouldn't just be clothed with a cloak and have your shame covered temporarily as you are taken from that place where you were sold as a slave. No, he covered you with a cloak of his own righteousness purchased for you by his perfect life given to you in exchange for your sin and the only garment, the only covering, the only righteousness upon which you will ever be judged. Beloved, that's not justice. That's mercy and providence and patience and love. And it's secured because God will not allow his holiness to be tarnished and therefore he didn't just send Jesus to buy you back with money. He sent him to buy us back with his own life and to pay in full the debt that we had occurred, incurred for our adultery and our immorality and our rejection and our rebellion so that he could clothe us in his righteousness, the active and passive righteousness of Christ. If that's never been made real to you before, if that's never been clear to you before, if you've never understood the gospel that way, this, this picture that runs through it all of redemptive history, then may today be the day where you see yourself not as a willing participant, willing to accept Jesus, but rather as somebody who brings absolutely nothing but your shame and your rebellion and allow yourself to be enveloped by the love of a Savior who laid himself down for you, knowing that you bring nothing but your need for that kind of redemption and then throw yourself on his mercy today by his kind providence thanking him for his patience and allowing you to get to this point where you can hear that gospel and respond and allow yourself to be lost in the infinite riches of his love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing truth in the context of a chapter that is so often used as an instrument of blunt force trauma upon people who are made to believe that the doctrine of predestination is just a cold and callous arbitrary selection of some and then a vindictive selection of others to feed the fires of hell. I pray that today would be a day where our eyes are open to the magnificent benevolence and love that you show and that you have poured out in the hearts of apostles like Paul. We thank you for revealing to us in the grand scheme of redemptive history all that has unfolded, not only in the promise to one day restore Israel, but a true Israel, a spiritual Israel, a complete Israel, made up not only of people from that nation, but now we see the mystery revealed of all tribes and tongues and nations. And oh, Father, I pray that you would just banish the thought that this is merely a national or or cultural phenomenon, but this is something that applies to us individually, that that you have come to us in our state as Gomer was, whether we realize it or not, with the kind of love that Hosea showed. And you have wrapped us 
not just in a cloak, but in your righteousness. And you have paid for us, not just with money, but with your own blood. And, and you will dwell with us, not just as a husband with a wife in a reconciled marriage, but as a husband with his bride in a new heavens and a new earth and a resurrected body in glory forever. May that be what loosens these shackles that we are experiencing that tie us to materialism and to luxury and comfort and all of the sinful desires of our heart that we so desperately long to fulfill. Remind us instead of the voice of one calling, buying us back. And may those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says, even to this church. In your name we pray. Amen.